Welcome to Walking with Moses, where we walk through the first five books of the Bible from two unique perspectives. My name is Dylan White, and I come from a Messianic Jewish background. And my name is Jordan Gann, and I come from an Evangelical Christian background. Now, today is March 11th, 2022, or the 8th of Adar II in the year 5782 on the Jewish calendar. And today we're going to be reading and discussing Leviticus chapter 4, verse 27 through 510. If one person of the people of the land commits a sin unintentionally, by his committing one of the commandments of the Lord, which may not be committed incurring guilt. If his sin that he committed is made known to him, he shall bring his sacrifice, an unblemished female goat, for his sin that he committed. And he shall lean his hand on the head of the sin offering, and he shall slaughter the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger and place it on the horns of the altar used for burnt offerings. And then he shall pour all of its remaining blood at the base of the altar. And he shall remove all of its fat, just as the fat was removed from the peace offering. And the priest shall then cause it to go up and smoke on the altar as a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. If he brings a sheep for his sin offering, he shall bring an unblemished female. He shall lean his hand upon the head of the sin offering and slaughter it as a sin offering in the place where he slaughters the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and place it on the horns of the altar used for burnt offerings. And then he shall pour all of its blood onto the base of the altar. And he shall remove all its fat, just as the sheep's fat is removed from the peace offering. And the priest shall then cause them to go up and smoke on the altar upon the fires for the Lord. Then the priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin which he committed, and he shall be forgiven. If a person sins whereby he accepts an oath and he is a witness to some matter by seeing or knowing it, if he does not testify, he shall bear his transgression. Or if a person touches anything unclean, whether it is the carcass of an unclean wild animal, or the carcass of an unclean domestic animal, or the carcass of an unclean creeping animal, and it was hidden from him, he incurs guilt. Or if he touches the uncleanness of a human with any uncleanness through which he may become defiled, it is hidden from him, and later he knows he has incurred guilt. Or if a person swears, expressing with his lips to do harm or to do good, whatever a man may express in an oath, and it is hidden from him, and later he knows, he is guilty in any of these cases. And it shall be, when someone incurs guilt in any of these cases, that he shall confess the sin which he had committed, and he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he had committed, a female animal from the flock, either a sheep or a goat, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement from his sin. But if he cannot afford a sheep, he shall bring as a guilt offering for that sin that he committed two turtle doves or two young doves before the Lord, one for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest, who shall first offer up that bird which is designated for the sin offering. He shall cut its head by piercing with his nail opposite the back of his head, but shall not separate it. He shall sprinkle from the blood of the sin offering on the wall of the altar, and the remainder of the blood shall be pressed out onto the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. And he shall offer up the second one as a burnt offering, according to the law. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him from his sin which he had committed, and he shall be forgiven. So there's a lot here. We're finishing out a chapter mm -hmm. and starting anew. So for instance, here in verse 27, it says, If one person of the people of the land commits a sin unintentionally, by his committing one of the commandments of the Lord, which may not be committed, he therefore incurs guilt. So now we're not talking about a community of people. We're talking about the individual breaking a thou shalt not. So yesterday we talked about the high priest, the court, and the public official mm -hmm. who committed an unintentional sin. 
uh, specifically the unintentional sin of karet, or the kind of sin that cuts one off. Here, however, this is an individual who does so, and the protocol for him is a bit different. So if you notice something in verse 27, it says, if one person of the people of the land commits a sin unintentionally, if, not when, if, it's a conditional statement, we are capable of preventing unintentional sins caused by carelessness and laxity. If we guard ourselves from missing the mark, from committing what here is referred to as a chet or an unintentional sin, through vigilance or caution derived from study and constant contemplation on the weight of our divine service before God and the reality of divine judgment, that every sin has a consequence. If we were truly of this mindset, then we'd be able to truly, as it says in the Psalms, turn from evil and then do good and avoid accidentally slipping up and crossing the line of a negative commandment. This is even more important when you have to be occupied as an individual with secular worldly affairs. Maybe you don't naturally take holy things seriously or you consider them to be kind of frivolous. And when you surround yourself with bad company, all these cause one to fall into a pattern of laxity and carelessness. You are the company you keep. The inclusion of if and not when a person sins teaches us that we have the ability to prevent something like this from happening and that the sin is not inevitable. It does not relate to our essential nature, which is why it says the soul. But in the Hebrew, it says nefesh. It's your animalistic soul or your flesh, as Paul puts it. It is your flesh that caused you to sin. It's not who you are. It's just what you did. And therefore, because it's not true to your essential nature, you're capable of preventing it. We being the people that we are in the modern times that we are, Surrounding ourselves, unfortunately, with the people we sometimes do and the work we sometimes do. This is very relevant to us. It's very difficult, even for a pious person, to constantly be contemplating the words of God. To constantly be in prayer. To constantly be guarding oneself against accidental sin. To constantly be replacing the vacuum where sin once was with positive commandments. Like It's a, it's a lot of effort. And to keep up with it all the time when you have a secular job, when you live in a culture that is very secular, it becomes an environment in which you can fall into a place of carelessness and laxity that therefore causes you to sin. And you see a perfect example of this in relationships of Christians our age. What starts out as going on dates very above board, out in public, very appropriate. If you're not careful because of the inclination, your flesh and the world around you, holding hands can turn into kissing, can turn into more than kissing, can turn into this and then turn into that. And the next thing you know, you've gone the distance and you're laying in bed together and oh no, what have we done? And how much more in sins of greater severity, such as when a person is unclean and then enters into the sanctuary, the temple, and eats a holy sacrifice while being unclean. It's sins like this that we refer to as karet that have spiritual excision that cut you off from God and the people of Israel. Let's say that you incur guilt because you messed up, right? You have a pattern of behavior that led to an accidental sin. You've now incurred guilt. What do I do now? Verse 28 says, If his sin that he committed is made known to him, he shall bring his sacrifice, an unblemished female goat, for his sin that he committed. He, he is, becomes conscious and aware that he has messed up then at that point, he immediately runs and offers a sacrifice. And why a female goat? Why is that different? So the female goat, as opposed to the male goat that was used for the public official, is because a male goat has a masculine characteristic behind it. We talked about that the reason that 
the leader didn't bring a bull is because he did not cause others to sin directly. However, why is it a male goat as opposed to a female goat? Well, it's a male goat because he requires a more masculine approach to his repentance. When he goes to the altar and he brings the goat, the male goat, and slaughters it there, then at that point, he in his mind is thinking, what is happening to the animal should have been done to me. And therefore, it jolts his system. It shocks him into reality so that he would repent. The female goat, on the other hand, represents a more feminine approach. It doesn't jolt them in a sense of shock. Instead, it inspires them. It's like a mother telling a child, you're not a bad kid, but you did a bad thing. This female goat then comes to inspire in a very feminine way the person to correct their error and do better in the future. So verse 29 says, And he shall lean his hand on the head of the sin offering, and he shall slaughter the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. We talked a little bit about this before, about it being an identification or an association. Verse 30, And the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger and place it on the horns of the altar used for burnt offerings, and then he shall pour all of its remaining blood at the base of the altar. So the altar burnt offering represents our divine service before God, which was affected by our misdeed. So this comes to atone for that action. Also, because blood represents passion and drive, we're saying to God that may our passions and drives that led to our misdeed be redirected towards our divine service, thus doing repentance, prayer, and charity and good deeds with renewed energy and walking with greater vigilance. However, not just any energy here. We see in the very next verse, and he shall remove all of its fat, just as the fat was removed from the peace offering. What does fat represent? The best of the animal. Exactly. So we're turning our life around and giving the best of our energy, the best of our life, the best of our resources in repentance and thereby bringing peace to not only the relationship that we have with God, but bringing peace back to the world as you did for the peace offering. Verse 32 says, if he brings a sheep for his sin offering, he shall bring an unblemished female and he shall lean his hand upon the head of the sin offering and slaughter it as a sin offering in the place where he slaughters the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and place it on the horns of the altar used for burnt offering. And he then shall pour all of its blood onto the base of the altar. And he shall remove all of its fat, just as the sheep's fat is removed from the peace offering. And the priest shall then cause them to go up and smoke on the altar upon the fires for the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin which he committed, and he will be forgiven. So same protocol. There's only one fundamental difference. It's the type of sacrifice. Why mention the sheep separate? Because it has a part of it that needs to be offered up that wasn't on the goat. The fatty tail. That's right. So the fatty tail needs to go on to the altar. Then going into verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, If a person sins, whereby he accepts an oath, and he is a witness to some matter by seeing or knowing it, yet he does not testify, he shall bear his transgression. So the literal meaning of this commandment, Let's say that you witnessed a crime and the victim of that crime asked you to take an oath that you're gonna testify in a court, but you overslept and didn't make it to the court date. Or you decided to keep quiet out of self-preservation. Yeah, and you, I mean, this translates into modern times. If you were called to the stand, mm -hmm. and if you're gonna swear to the truth, if you're gonna swear to your word, you should keep it. In the Bible, we have several laws that tell us that we're to keep quiet in many situations, that it's better for us to not speak than to speak certain things. Gossip, slander, tail-bearing, you name it. However, there are times where we are biblically mandated to speak up. 
And this is one of those times. We read in Leviticus 19, and we'll be seeing this in a few chapters, is that you're not to stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. So if you know it's going to cost someone their life, or even if it's going to cost them money or mental, emotional health or whatever, you have a moral obligation to warn that individual who is in the path of danger. There's a common teaching in Judaism on this verse that says that the oath that the person is accepting is the oath that they took before God before he sent their soul into their body to say, you're going to pursue me and you're going to pursue righteousness. And then when he says you were a witness to this matter by seeing or knowing it, it's referring to Mount Sinai. And yet it says he did not testify. Israel has been called to be a light to the nations. This could also be related to the New Testament where by accepting Yeshua, Jesus, as the Messiah, we are committing to walk as he walked. And in that, we not only bear witness to what he's done in the Gospels, not only how he lived and died, buried and was raised from the dead, but also how he's personally impacted our life. And therefore, we have a moral obligation to testify. To lead by example in such a way, now you can use words. If someone has a question, answer it. Answer it to the best of your ability. They have to be receptive. Exactly. And the way you make someone receptive who has no idea of the words of God is to lead by example. Mm -hmm. Live in such a way that they question how are they walking the way they walk in a world that we live in? How do they have such faith? How do they have such calm in the storm? How do they have such peace? It's like what it says in Matthew 5. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. By our actions, we are capable of opening up the conversation for people to hear the words of truth. So verse 2 says, Or if a person touches anything unclean, whether it is the carcass of an unclean wild animal, or the carcass of an unclean domestic animal, or the carcass of an unclean creeping animal, and it was hidden from him, he incurs guilt. In other words, he accidentally touched something that was unclean. This is not a physical uncleanliness. It's not like dirt under your fingernails. It's a spiritual ritual uncleanliness. So basically, don't touch dead stuff. Don't touch dead stuff. <laughs> Verse 3 says, or if he touches the uncleanness of a human, this is also touching dead stuff. This yeah. is a corpse. He says, with any uncleanness through which he may be defiled, and it is hidden from him and later he knows he has incurred guilt. This also includes somebody who had a discharge, decided to shake hands with them and didn't realize that they were uh, what's referred to in Hebrew as a tzav or a tzava, someone who has just experienced a discharge. Shaking hands with a man who cohabitates with someone we call a nidah, that is a woman on her menstrual flow. Being unclean is not a sin. The act of entering into the sanctuary and eating of the holy sacrifices while unclean, that is the sin that incurs guilt. Verse 4 says, If a person swears, expressing with his lips that he's going to do harm or do good, whatever a man may express in an oath, and it's hidden from him and later he knows, he's guilty in any of these cases. So here he's making an oath with his lips, and he's doing so for either harm or for good. Now, this is harm directed at himself or good directed at himself. Here he's saying, for instance, I will eat, I will sleep, I will not eat, I will not sleep. And what happens if he transgresses this out of like willful intention or forgetfulness? He's going to incur guilt. Don't make promises you can't keep. Verse 5, and it shall be when someone incurs guilt in any of these cases that he shall confess the sin which he had committed. It's easy for us to say out loud that we messed up. It's harder, however, for us to do a sincere soul searching. This is a, a deep diving discovery to eliminate any negative character traits that could have led to this specific sin. Inadvertent sin doesn't occur in a vacuum. 
And we see this back in chapter 4, verse 28, which is the beginning of our reading, where it says the phrase, sinning he sinned, meaning that there were sins that led up to this specific act. There was a pattern of lifestyle choices that then led one to trip up and commit a sin of karet. It's not sin like, oh, it just popped up, and all of a sudden I was doing the, the, the worst sin I could do. It It's a building up of smaller things, things that really should have never been crossed in the first place. We allowed ourselves the slack to make small compromises. There's a common saying in Judaism that the personality that emerges after repentance must be a completely different personality than the one that sinned. And that does not happen passively. That is an active process complete and total accounting of one's actions in order that they can uproot the negative in order to be able to make a rectification for that sin. And know that it's going to hurt. Oh, yeah. It's going to challenge you. It's going to make you want to quit and give up and just nope and brush it under the rug. But if you hang on to it and let it hurt and let it teach you something and repent you can get back out of that bed a brand new person. Mm. Clean slate, start over, and God forgives. Mm. Verse 6 says, And he shall bring his guilt offering for the Lord for his sin which he had committed, a female animal from the flock, either a sheep or a goat, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for his sin. But if he cannot afford a sheep, he shall bring as his guilt offering for that sin that he had committed, two turtle doves or two young doves before the Lord, one for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. No one is above it. That's what's great with this. We see the idea of the two doves before. We see the idea of the pigeon before. This is for somebody who can't afford the goat. Right, everybody's bringing something according to their means. Which means everyone has the means to repent. There is no excuse. So verse 8 through 9 says, He shall bring them to the priest, who shall first offer up that bird, which is designated for the sin offering. And he shall cut its head by piercing with his nail opposite the back of its head, but shall not separate it. He shall sprinkle from the blood of the sin offering on the wall of the altar, and the remainder of the blood shall be pressed out onto the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Moving on to verse 10, it says, And he shall offer up the second one as a burnt offering according to the law. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him from his sin which he committed, and he shall be forgiven. So we see that there's an order to these sacrifices. So you have to give the sin offering first. How are you going to bring a gift to the king when you're wanted for murder. The sin offering precedes the burnt offering because appeasing the king for an error through the sin offering comes before approaching him with a gift, which is symbolized by the burnt offering. That is, before we can bring voluntary gifts to God out of a desire to draw near to him, we must first appease him through repentance and restitution for our offenses. In verse 9, he summarizes saying, this is the sin offering, chatatu. This speaks to the intention. If the bird was designated as a sin offering, then it is valid when it is offered. But if it wasn't designated as a sin offering, then it's not accepted. The process needs to be both according to the proper protocol and with the proper intention. Your offering has to be by design. It can't be a matter of happenstance. Verse 10 comes to conclude our section, and it teaches us that once God is appeased by the sin offering, we can then bring the gift of the burnt offering in order to curry favor with the king. Also, the sin offering is for negative commandments, right? Which we likely violated 
due to our neglect to fulfill positive commandments, which is symbolized by the burnt offering. It's not enough for us to guard ourselves in vigilance against sin. We have to fill the vacuum with positive commandments. You realize that drinking to drunkenness is bad. So you want to get rid of that. Well, it's not enough to simply say, I'll no longer drink alcohol. 9.9 times out of 10, that's not going to work. If you just don't drink alcohol anymore, quit cold turkey, and exist in this vacuum, every little thing will tempt you. Every opportunity, every moment you'll be thinking alcohol. And there's a pretty good chance because of that, you won't succeed. You have to supplement with something else. You take the alcohol out, you have to put study in. You have to put God in. You have to be surrounding yourself with a community of believers around you. That way, when you do have those thoughts or you do have those temptations, you have something in place already to stop you. Isaiah chapter 1, and also in the Psalms, it says, Turn from evil and do good. It's not enough to turn from evil. We also have to do good. And so as we look at these offerings being offered for an individual, may we all take stock of our individual lives, guard ourselves from sinful behaviors, and also fill that vacuum with positive commandments that draw us closer to God and closer to one another. Join us tomorrow for another Walking with Moses.